It's 6 p.m., and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, September 12th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jim. Looking for a new place to live? Well, in Sacramento, you can rent a micro-apartment, which is a living space smaller than 300 square feet. The California Report has the details. Then, after a look at local news and weather, KVMR's Paul Emery and Gary Zimmerman bring us yet another financial update. That's all before KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza brings us to the Madeline Helling Library, which was recently the venue for a punk performance by local band Slutsville. There, he talks with librarian Ian Bolt to learn more about the branch's brand new zine collection. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles, and here are some California stories we're following. The state legislature has passed SB 423. It's a bill that extends a law on the books for a decade that lets developers get around local zoning codes and community opposition in order to build more housing. The extension would only apply to cities that have fallen short in meeting state housing mandates. The legislation was opposed by some cities and some unions who argued it lacked pay and worker protections. Governor Gavin Newsom has until October 14th to either sign or veto the bill. California's fast food industry and organized labor have reached a tentative deal to raise the minimum wage for half a million fast food workers in the state. Workers would see their starting minimum pay boosted to $20 an hour next year. Maria Hernandez works at a Taco Bell in Folsom. She spoke to CBS 13 in Sacramento. Oh, I was super excited. I mean, imagine, you know, getting paid the minimum, just 15. I was working a lot of hours and still making like basically no money. The deal also allows the state to move forward with creating a council to monitor pay and workplace conditions in California's fast food industry. Companies were backing a ballot initiative to stop the pay increases and council from being formed, but are now supposed to withdraw that initiative under the deal. California public health officials are launching an education campaign this month to warn people about the dangers of fentanyl use. The campaign is expected to last two years and will feature messaging in both English and Spanish on billboards, television, social media, and radio. Here's an example. The drug landscape has changed. Illegal fentanyl has made its way into the drug supply. A synthetic opioid up to 50 times stronger than heroin, up to 100 times stronger than morphine. It only takes the tiniest amount to cause a fatal overdose. Last year, fentanyl contributed to a record number of drug overdose deaths in the U.S., nearly 110,000 people. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation. Listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines the pursuit of good health on the web at chcf.org lbca. Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com ca. Guideline, the California way to 401k. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, advancing the frontiers of ocean science, exploration, and discovery on the web at schmidtocean.org. 
As cities across California struggle with a lack of affordable housing, developers are thinking micro, as in micro apartments, living spaces smaller than 300 square feet or roughly about the size of a single car garage. In Sacramento, CAP Radio's Chris Nichols takes us on a tour of one micro apartment development. It is a little crowded in here. Um, it's a tiny little space. That's so. Caesar LaVey inside his 267 square foot apartment at Sonrisa, a new affordable housing community in downtown Sacramento, two blocks from the state capitol. There's not a lot of space to sit down or do anything like that. That's okay. LaVey's space is tiny, but he makes the most of it. His Murphy bed folds up into the wall and transforms into a couch. Yes, this will just go up like that leaving him just steps right. from his fridge, microwave, and induction stove. Two steps to the kitchen, and uh, I think that's kind of the way I prefer it at the moment. <laughs> at the moment, the 20-year-old LaVey says he's lucky just to have this small space. He pays a little more than $800 a month in rent, about $1,000 below the average apartment rent, in a region that has a shortfall of tens of thousands of affordable homes. LaVey, who makes $17.50 an hour as a tailor, says he and other young renters don't have a lot of options right now. It's not that nobody wants to have a big house and kids and things like that. It's that it's become so completely unaffordable and so far out of anybody else's reach that we literally just cannot touch it. That's like dreaming for touching the stars. Housing experts say micro apartments can help with the affordability crisis. But as projects like Sonrisa move forward, cities should make sure they maintain health, safety, and quality of life standards, says Lakshmi Ramasubramonian, an urban planning professor at San Jose State. We do have to think about how small is too small because the way people use their home has changed over the past several years. It's amplified through the pandemic. People work from home. But UC Davis law professor Chris Elmendorf, who researches California's housing crisis, says given the state's dire lack of affordable homes, going small makes sense. I don't see size as being a health or safety issue, right? Particularly when the alternative is a tent, right? We know that it's not safe to live in a tent on the street. Sacramento's city code requires a minimum 150 square feet of living space in so-called efficiency units. They must also provide a kitchen and bathroom and house no more than two people. Supporters of micro-apartments say they help more than just young renters. They're also an affordable option for older residents on a fixed income, for single parents, and for people with disabilities who need to access downtown services. I think we have a lot of one- and two-person households that are looking for affordable places to live and it's really hard to do without a second income or a roommate. That's Danielle Foster. She heads the public agency that developed Sonrisa and opened it in March. To live at the complex, tenants must make between 40 and 60% of the area median income. Foster says there's nothing small about the demand for the project's 58 apartments, which are all full. We have a waiting list of over 860 households right now just for this location. And so we know there's a great need and a great demand for more housing of this type. Back inside his apartment, LaVey says that massive waiting list reinforces how fortunate he is 
to have a home. This was like a diamond, literally, in the rough. Um, I could not have found something better. LaVey adds he can't afford to leave anytime soon. For the California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. And that is the California Report for Tuesday, September 12th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and let's meet up again tomorrow. In regional news, according to UBANET, the American Association of University Women, or AAUW's Nevada County branch, has announced its board members for the 2023-2024 year, which will kick off with a brunch on Saturday, September 16th from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. at Peace Lutheran Church. That's at 828 West Main Street in Grass Valley. This annual kickoff meeting is meant to offer attendees a snapshot of the organization. Elected for a second year to lead the branch is Deborah York, who will return as branch president. The other 2023-2024 AAUW Nevada County branch elected officers are Ann Gold, secretary, Jennifer Wilkerson and Peg Flanders, co-finance officers, Diane Kellegrew and Karen Hull, program co-vice presidents, Carol McMillan and Mary Kobus, AAW Funds co-vice presidents, and Deb Cubberly, membership vice president. Also serving on the executive committee is past president, Catherine Greenwood. According to President Deborah York, the September 16th brunch attendees will have the opportunity to check out displays on the AAUW scholarship and grant programs. Also on display will be special interest groups for avid book readers, hikers, gardeners, world affairs students, arts and crafters, among others. Not just that, but attendees will also have the chance to learn about free local programs and have a chance to meet and hear from the 2023 8th graders who attended the week-long AAUW Tech Trek Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math Camp at UC Davis in July. So what is the AAUW? Well, for more than 75 years, the AAUW Nevada County branch has been striving to advance equity for women and girls through advocacy, education, philanthropy, and research. Membership is open to individuals with an associate degree or higher from a qualified educational institution, and for those who haven't completed a degree but still are interested in participating, the Nevada County branch offers Friends of AAUW memberships. A press release announced that yesterday evening, on September 11, 2023, at approximately 7 p.m., CHP officers and emergency personnel responded to a crash involving a motorcycle on Highway 20, west of Rough and Ready Highway in unincorporated Nevada County. The crash location was at the end of a two-lane passing lane merge section. Responding officers determined that Barry Duffin was driving his 2001 Harley-Davidson Superglide westbound, passing traffic in the right-side passing lane at a high rate of speed. He was approaching the merge, attempting to complete his passing movement. Torin Minor was driving a 2017 Dodge Caravan westbound on Highway 20 at the end of the passing lane merge. Duffin failed to observe that the merge had ended and, in the rapidly narrowing lane, collided with the right side of the caravan, causing his ejection onto the roadway. Duffin and the Harley struck the roadway, causing major injuries. He was flown by CalSTAR to Sutter Roseville Medical Center with multiple bone fractures. This crash remains under investigation, and neither alcohol or drugs are suspected factors. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, clear with a low around 57. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 84. 
and Wednesday night will be clear with a low around 60. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight will be mostly clear with a low around 44, Wednesday sunny with a high near 76, and Wednesday night mostly clear with a low around 45. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight clear with a low around 58, Wednesday sunny and hot with a high near 92, and Wednesday night clear with a low around 61. Currently, there are no red flag warnings or fire weather watches. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Next week, on September 19th and 20th, the Federal Reserve policymakers will be meeting at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. After the meeting, they'll announce any monetary policy decisions made, but what does that mean for us? Coming up, KVMR's Paul Emery sits down with retired Fed economist Gary Zimmerman to answer that question. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kalb, wealth management advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street in Nevada City. Rick, K-A-L-B dot com. Well, it's time for our financial update with Gary Zimmerman. Welcome back to KVMR, Gary. Thank you, Paul. Gary, the Federal Reserve policymakers will be meeting next week to make a monetary policy decision. After their meeting, will they announce what they will do with their overnight interest rate target? Yes, Paul. On September 19th and 20th, the Federal Reserve policymakers will be meeting at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. This is the seven Fed governors and the 12 Federal Reserve Bank presidents from around the country. And yes, after the meeting, they will announce any monetary policy decisions, as they've done over the last about 30 years. Um, They'll also publish their quarterly projections for the year in 2023, 2024, 2025 for key economic variables like the inflation rate, the economic growth rate, the unemployment rate, and they will give us their expected target interest rate over the next several years. So, you know, stay tuned for those projections, as well as the announcement about what any policy decision changes. Okay, a a technical question, but a short answer, if you could. (laughs) How does the Federal Reserve raise or lower market interest rates on loans between banks? Well, the Federal Reserve can raise the overnight interest rate target by selling bonds to banks, and that takes reserves out of the banking system. When a bank buys the bonds from the Fed, it must pay the Fed, and that reduces reserves in that bank's account at the Fed. And you know, when the Fed does this with a lot of banks, it can take billions out of the banking system, and that causes interest rates to rise. On the other hand, the Fed can lower the interest rate target by buying bonds from the banks. When the Fed pays for the bonds, that adds reserves to uh, individual banks' um, reserve accounts at the Fed, and that adds you know, could add billions if the Fed buys billions of bonds, uh, dollars of bonds. Um, can add to the reserves in the banking system, and that lowers interest rates. So you know it's you know it's a simple supply and demand description of how the Federal Reserve policy controls short-term interest rates by constantly adding or subtracting reserves from the the banking system. Okay, Gary. Now on to the real question for this week: What are the financial markets expecting the Fed to do with their interest rate target next week? Raise by say another quarter percent? Leave them 
the way the way, the way they are, maybe lower them by a quarter percent. Okay, well, I think um, one can make a good case for expecting that the Fed policymakers are likely to leave their short-term interest rate target unchanged at this meeting. Um, the in re recent inflation numbers have been falling. Labor markets may be cooling a little bit. Um, and that gives the Fed more time to sort of evaluate the economy uh, as and what it, how it's doing and how inflation is doing uh, before they make their ne next move. And we've, we've already seen some policymakers and private forecasters, you know, taking this position and their expectations. Well, Gary, that's a short answer. Do you care to elaborate? Uh, always, Paul. Yes. First, there's been some, you know, recent comments by Federal Reserve policymakers, policymakers that suggest to me that some Fed officials are likely to consider holding rates unchanged at this meeting, you know, especially following the, the lower inflation numbers and some noticeable cooling in the labor market in the in the last month. Yeah, for example, the Dallas Fed president, Lori Logan, was quoted as indicating that the Fed could leave interest rates unchanged in September, but, you know, raise them later in the year to continue to keep downward pressure on inflation. And Federal Reserve Bank of New York President John Williams, you know, said something sort of along those lines as well. So so probably no interest rate increase next week from the Fed, um, but they're certainly um, possible to get another increase or two um, at the November and December um, Fed policymaker meetings. It's going to depend a lot on what's going on with the economy and inflation and labor market conditions. Well, Gary, November and December are coming right up. So we'll find <laughs> out sooner rather than later. Okay, Paul. Thank you, Gary. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and is currently a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria. He teaches courses in economics and finance. On the evening of Friday, September 8th, the Madeleine Helling Library opened its new collection of zines to the public. And as is standard in any library, they of course had to host a punk show to accompany that opening. Up next, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza brings us to the scene and talks with Ian Bolt, Nevada County Librarian, about what scenes represent and why their presence in the library is so special. Hey, everybody. How's it going tonight? Yeah! This is so cool. This is really rad. Thank you all for coming out. We really appreciate this show. Like Ian said, please respect the property uh, and respect each other. Respect each other. We are Splatsville. We are from Nevada County. Nevada County locals Slutsville took center stage on Friday at Madeline Helling Library. The free all-ages punk show was organized by the Nevada County Library to celebrate the launch of its new zine collection. Long a staple of DIY culture, zines are non-commercial, handmade, and self-published booklets that cover a wide variety of topics, themes, and viewpoints that are often ignored by mainstream publications. 
So a zine is basically just a self-published magazine on whatever subject you want. I mean, the whole point of zines is anybody can make one. So you take an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, maybe three or four of them, you fold them in half, you write whatever you want to write about, you know, give it a title on the cover, write your ideas, your inspirations, your dreams on the inside, and that's a zine. That's Ian Bolt, adult services librarian for the Nevada County Library. I talked to him right before the show. Tell me about how zines are related to the larger punk subculture. Sure, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that punks have been using zines to communicate like different ideologies within punk culture since like the late 1970s when punk started. Um, bands started distributing zines inside of their albums, especially in England. So you'd get a record, and then instead of just an insert with lyrics, you'd have this folded piece of paper which had a, a band's entire, their political thoughts, or just their, their poetry. Um, so yeah, it was really a way for punks to be able to, beyond just music, communicate broader uh, ideas to one another and I think that tradition still survives. So it's very connected to the punk subculture but it's not just punk is it? No it's not just punk at all I mean it's anybody it's anyone who has a th an ideology that they want to express like for example somebody who puts out their own chapbook of poems like that's a zine you know you're putting your poetry out, you're folding an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, and you know, because you want people to read your work. And it's not exclusively political either. No, absolutely not. You know, we've got zines here on how to grow house plants, you know, zines here on like how to grow a palm tree or how to attract birds or yeah, like a beginner's guide to tree watching. I think zines are just a way for people to express themselves and however people choose to do that is completely up to them. Um, but as a library, we're just here to support people sharing ideas, and it doesn't have anything to do with politics. We just want people to continue sharing ideas with one another because that's how we grow as a society. Tell me how the zine library works. Is it bring one, take one, check out? How does it work? You can borrow up to three zines at a time. You don't need to check them out. You just take them with you. When you take them with you, you should also take a zine passport with you. It is a square card that has a space for 10 stamps on the back of it. So when you bring your zines back to a library branch, they will stamp your zine passport for each zine that you return. When you fill up your zine passport with 10 stamps, you can bring it to the Madeline Helling Library and we have a secret zine stash behind the counter and you can take one of those zines out of the zine stash and that's yours to keep just for returning zines. And then of course, continue to check them out and continue to read them. The Nevada County Library plans to host zine making workshops in the near future and is encouraging both established and new creators to donate to the collection. If you are a local zine maker, if you are an artist, please bring your zines into the library. If you would like to donate them to the zine collection, we will add them immediately. If you would like to be compensated for your zines, we're very happy to do that as well. Just come, come to Madeline Helling Library and show us the zines that you would like to sell to the library 
and within reason we'll buy your zines because we want our local zinesters, our local artists to be represented in this collection. It's very important to us. So yeah, if you make zines, bring them here and we'll add them to the collection. For more information about the Nevada County Library's zine collection, or for a complete list of programs and services, visit them online at nevadacountyca.gov library. For KVMR, I'm Claudio Mendoza. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, September 12th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and Pioneer Community Energy, reminding listeners that locally owned, not-for-profit Pioneer brings a choice in electricity providers to Grass Valley and Nevada City in January of 2024. More info at org slash expansion and the Nevada City Constitution Commission, presenting the 57th annual Constitution Day weekend that's September 16th and 17th with a community concert Saturday at 4.30 p.m., a parade Sunday at 1.30 p.m., and revolutionary war reenactments at Pioneer Park all weekend long. Info at nevadacitychamber.com. Support for KV Mars Future of Radio Project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening Newscast is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem. Have a great night.